scripture reading is from Revelation 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The word of God for the people of God. You know, that's a time when I'm really thankful that there's a bunch of smiley-faced children sitting on the stairs when we're reading a passage like that. It's a good reminder for us as well that um, in the midst of a world that is broken and things don't work as they should, Uh, we are to trust God as little children, Um, not even understanding the full measure of how broken this world is, and yet we trust Him that He will take care of us and provide for us and keep us safe like our children trust us. Um, It's a good reminder as Brooke was reading. Thank you, Brooke, for doing that. Uh, Yeah, we're continuing our series in Revelation chapter 6, a vision we can all understand. There's a vision Uh, that John has here of the throne room of God. We're invited into the Holy of Holies to see um, the one who sits on the throne, the one who we believe is in control of all of history, who orders everything by his perfect will, the good 
and the bad. He is not the author of evil, but yet he has subdued it and used it because he is almighty and powerful. And this great vision it should be a reassurance to us that although life seems chaotic, our chaos has been conquered um, and is deemed useful even in the hands of this great God. So there's a vision here that we can understand, that we can relate to. This is not so otherworldly and so abstract that we can't even imagine it. We can, and there's beautiful imagery, vivid imagery to help us do so. So let's continue to unpack all that John sees as he continues to be in this throne room, as he's going to be for the rest of Revelation, and continue to see this powerful vision and what else is revealed to us about how history is unfolding and how God is interacting and controlling it by his sovereign grace. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we do trust you like little children. That we rest in dependence upon you to provide for us, to shelter us from the storms of life, to ease our pain, to relieve our fears, to trust wholly in You as the sovereign Lord of history. That even the things like the cancer diagnoses that we can't understand, that we can't explain to someone why it's happened, that we're able to trust that it is being used by You for good purposes, for ultimate purposes, to play out this great story of redemption. Lord, we long for you to return. We long for you to set things right. We long for the new heavens and the new earth, a home where there will be no more pain or sadness or tears. Please give us that soon. In Jesus' name, amen. So Micah just prayed, and as I mentioned last week, our friend Daniel Bashara was um, diagnosed with leukemia. And Daniel came to the doctor expecting something on par with the flu, only to receive a much more serious diagnosis, worse than he could have ever imagined or than anyone could have ever imagined. And so now Daniel is tasked with going through this painful and arduous process of agonizing chemo treatments in order to be fully healed and restored. The diagnosis is obviously not what anyone wanted to hear, but it's what Daniel must hear in order to be healed. He has to know the truth. The doctors would not be good doctors if they just said, oh, you wanted it to be the flu, that, then that's fine. We'll call it the flu. They have to tell him of the severity of what's actually happening, no matter how difficult it is to hear. And the sickness that got Daniel to the hospital was a symptom of a much deeper illness. And Daniel had to face something we all fear in order to get to the root of the problem of what's really going on. And to do that, a series of tests must be performed to fully understand the extent. And so unless you know the full extent of a disease, no real healing can occur. Unless they can figure out exactly what it is, they don't know how to treat it. But fortunately, they do know what it is. And they do know how bad it is, and they, knew, do, they do know the extent of what he must endure and suffer. And I think what Daniel is going through, it really relates to what's being revealed here in Revelation chapter 6. N.T. Wright, a famous theologian and pastor, he makes this connection. I thought it was interesting as I read it this week, and I want to share it with you guys. He says, unless the ills of the world are brought out, shown up in their true colors, put on display, and allowed to do their worst, 
they cannot be overthrown. Unless the four horsemen ride out and do what they have to do, the scroll cannot be read. The victory of the lion lamb will not be complete. Things have to be exposed before they can be dealt with. Things have to come to light before the surgeon can perform the operation. Revelation, as it were, is a cosmic version of the struggle against the ills of this world. The soul of the world is unaware of immediate problems, unable to diagnose itself. But unless we look deeper to the ancient patterns of conquest, violence, oppression, and death itself, we shall not begin to understand what needs to be done if the world is to be healed. Really healed rather than merely patched together for a few more years. I think sadly, like Daniel's treatments, for things to get better, they have to get far worse. He's going to get much sicker, much weaker, much more discouraged, and then healing will begin to take place. Another way to say it is that in order to fully appreciate the good news, you must first understand how bad the bad news is. That's what Revelation 6 is presenting to us. And it's presenting us, I think, most powerfully, a God who is not unsympathetic to it. A God who has it placed before him the very cries that we cry ourselves for justice and for redemption and healing. He places those cries eternally right before his throne, at the foot of his throne. Underneath the altar, he is listening to those cries day and night. And he doesn't ignore them, but here in Revelation, he has a brilliant answer to them. So a passage that comes across as being confusing, maybe terrifying, or just sad or depressing, there's actually great gospel hope here. And that's what I'm looking forward to unpacking to you guys. And I want to do it by looking at three points. There's a problem that we're all facing, the question that we're all asking, and a solution that we're all needing. So a problem we're all facing, a question we're all asking, a solution we're all needing. First, the problem we're all facing. So the natural question here would be, if you're like me, what the heck is going on with these horsemen? Commonly referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So I'm glad you, glad you asked. Um, to introduce these four horses and their riders, something very important happens. The lamb begins to open the scroll about which we read la about last week, having the entirety of God's sovereign will for all of history written on it, both the good and the bad. It's beginning to be read, and the um, creatures, the four creatures that are praising and worshiping God as holy, 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 they call on these riders to be presented. They don't come out on their own. They're not... They're not um, going about their business by their own volition, but underneath the sovereign will of God. That is incredibly important to emphasize. God is in control of what they're doing. Evil is not happening, and God is throwing up his hands and be like, well, I got you know, to think of something. It wasn't Israel. Maybe Jesus will fix it. As soon as sin entered the world in Genesis 3, God made a promise that he would send a rescuer to rescue us from this broken world and to heal it and redeem it and restore it. It's always been on God's heart. It's eternal. It's who He is. And the four horsemen here have the distinct privilege of representing and revealing all of the bad that's, that's, that's read from that scroll. So in my view, although there's different views on Revelation, as we all know, in my view, these, these horsemen are not literal like angels or demons that are literally riding on the earth. 
They're simply representing a reality of what God has allowed to happen in history. The seven seals represent all of history, and the first four seals are representing the calamities and the injustices and the suffering and the evil of history. Okay? So the four horsemen represent the four major ills people inflict upon each other throughout time. That's my interpretation of this. You are welcome to disagree with me. I think whether you agree with that or not, the truth is still the same. There is an evil that is allowed to infiltrate the world and lay waste to the world and inflict uh, pain and suffering and death upon the world. And it's all happening under God's watch. So you have this first seal. At the command of the four living creatures under God's command, they unleash a white horse with a rider who comes with a bow and a crown who goes out conquering the earth. The color of these horsemen is extremely important. It's what they represent. So white here represents conquest. It represents victory. And it's saying that this horseman has gone out as a, as a symbol of the leaders of the world, the kings of history who have conquered people, who have offered their own brand of peace to the world. And although it might bring peace for a time or a season or it might look like it's going to bring peace, I mean, what Hitler thought he was doing, he thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was bringing peace to a nation. Obviously, we saw how distorted and messed up that was and self-centered and selfish and just abusive it was. And so these four horsemen represent the Bin Ladens and the Hitlers and the Napoleons and the Alexanders and the Caesars and the Khans and the Stalins. They each overthrow human claims at peace, promising their own forms of peace, their own false forms of peace. That it may even last for a season or a time, but not forever. All of those kingdoms that I've just mentioned have all been overthrown. No matter how eternal they seemed or powerful or long-lasting, they've all been overthrown. And the same thing will probably happen to our own empire here in America. It's not forever. There is no kingdom that is forever except for one. And we cannot rest in the power of this kingdom or any earthly kingdom. The rider of the white horse wears a crown. He's colored white to represent power and conquest. And the second seal is then unleashed, and it's a red horse. And its rider is permitted to take away peace from the earth and to slay one another with the sword. So what that means is he's bringing war. He represents war and deep conflict throughout history that is obviously proven to be true. There's wars and constant wars all the time. And Jesus talks about how in the last days there will be wars and rumors of wars. And we've experienced that since Jesus' ascension and until he comes again. It will always be that way. And then the third seal is unleashed, and this black horse carries a scale. And this one's kind of interesting. We have to put our thinking caps on for this one a little bit. But when this horseman's revealed, John hears the four creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. What in the world does that mean? Um, well, as you study this and unpack it a little bit, it actually, it actually makes a lot of sense. So a quart of wheat for a denarius is typically a day's wages is what you would spend to buy the amount of wheat that you needed to eat typically. But when there was a famine, some leaders would oppress their people 
by giving them where, where they would store and hoard the wheat and the wine and the oil for the privileged and the rich and the wealthy and the royalty. They would then give barley out to the people who were starving, and barley is what you typically, it's like a cheap form of wheat that you typically feed to the animals. And so in times of famine, there was more barley available than wheat, and so not only would they tell the people, you, you need to eat the barley in order to survive, and they would be relegated to that, they would also charge them three times the amount it would cost to normally buy wheat. So that's a great injustice to the people. As the rich and the wealthy are hoarding the finer things in order to survive, they're making the people relegated to live like animals, and they're charging them three times the normal cost for it. And that's what this black horse represents, the injustice, economic oppression and taxation of people. Kingdoms would oppress their people with unjust costs and endure horrific calamities, um, like famines, floods, earthquakes, it would cause these situations where people would be abused and mistreated. And that's what the black horse is representing. Is that horse is allowed to be unleashed upon the earth and do its worst and do its damage. And then the fourth seal unleashes this pale horse. And it's best not to think of pale here at, like we think of pale as like flushed white. That The word actually is chloris, which, which is where we get our word chlorine, and it's actually more of like a blue-green sick feeling, or sick color or look to it. So it's kind of this disgusting look. Um, and the rider is representing death, and it says hell follows close behind him. So this rider is bringing this nauseating, sick reality to the world called death. And death is being afflicted upon people, as obviously we've seen and experienced, in both natural and unnatural ways. And then verse 8 is, like I said, really important. These horsemen were given authority by God to kill and to starve and to plague and devour people for a time. But this is where it gets really hard. Because what does that mean? Is God responsible for the evil? That's a hard one to reconcile in our hearts and minds. That's a tough pill to swallow. But I do think it's true nonetheless that while God uses evil, He is not the author of evil. And Scripture is very clear about that. And I think the cross is our best example of that truth. God uses the most horrific form of death imaginable in crucifixion to create the greatest gift and reality in history, which is salvation. But we have to go through the cross in order to experience that. We have to see the bad in order to experience and, and appreciate the good. It means that Christ has made the forces of evil his agents to execute his purposes for sanctification and judgment for the furtherance of his kingdom. So this means that evil does not run loose as though it had any authority to decide the end from the beginning or anything in between. It can only torment and annoy and bother and distort and disrupt by God's decree. So the person who says a good and loving God can't allow evil and suffering or that God doesn't care about evil and suffering, it sure doesn't look like that here. It looks like he's very much involved in how evil and suffering is afflicting the world. And it is bound by him. It is not running loose and out of control. Although it's very much out of, out of our control, and it is happening to us, and we are victims of it, 
and we are experiencing it, it is not out of God's control. And this would have been an incredible reality for, this, for, uh, for anyone, but especially for the church that was receiving this letter, that was being persecuted by the Roman authorities, that were being fed to the lions in the Colosseum, who were having hor- horrific things happen to them that they couldn't comprehend or understand or make sense of. And what, this, what John is saying is, although you can't make sense of it, God can. And God can use it. And he, well, he is using it. It's not just he can, he is. It doesn't mean we call evil good. Isaiah warns us not to do that. It doesn't mean that we don't need to fear it or worry that it will ever get the upper hand. It does mean that we don't need to fear that we, uh, it will ever get the upper hand. It's subdued and controlled evil. It doesn't make it any less awful when we experience it for what it is, but it does give us a source to run to and to seek help from. That's what we're being told here. And it leads us to our second point, which I find to be incredibly refreshing especially in response to that question of how does a good God allow evil and suffering, which is such a pivotal question for us to all wrestle with and and answer for friends that are struggling with that. But let's look at the question that we're all asking. That's what these martyrs who are under the altar are representing, and their question is so powerful. I want to look at three aspects of these martyrs, their cause, their cry, and their condition. First, their cause. They're, They're martyrs because they were killed for bearing witness to who Jesus is and witness to the truth of the gospel in the face of evil and oppression. And evil and oppression overtook them in the sense that it took their life from them. It killed them because of what they stood for. It's really important because it tells us again that we're not to stand for evil or accept it, although God is using it. We still fight against it. We still call it what it is, and we still wage war against evil every day. It's why Christ has set us free, according to Paul in his letter to the church in Galatians. We're free to fight, but we don't fight alone. And their cause leads to their cry. And you see this question that they're, they're asking, eternally asking this question. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Think about that reality. There's a question being eternally asked before the throne of God in which God not only hears, but He answers. That means He cares about that question that's being asked. Why could a good God allow evil and suffering? In other words, how much longer are you going to allow this evil to exist and your people to suffer before you end it for good? God recognizes that as a very worthy question. And there is an answer to it. John tells us that they're given white robes to wear and and told to simply rest. This is God's answer. Rest in patience until the final martyr is killed and their number is complete. So there's a certain amount of these martyrs that God has ordained to die for his namesake. And once that last martyr is dead, then Jesus will return. So there is a beginning from an end to this. And God has purposed all of it. It is, again, not out of his control, but it's happening by his control. And it means that God doesn't just hear the question, he has an answer to it. This is God not just giving them an exact time, but telling them it's all under his control and it will come to an end in his perfect timing. And he tells them to rest in that. And we're meant to rest in that same answer as well. Even though it's hard, it's difficult, 
it, we squirm in that. We get restless. We get frustrated with God as we experience evil. That is all appropriate. And it just, it's not too big for God to handle. He can listen to all of the complaints, the fist shaking, the frustrations, the sadnesses over it. And he can handle it. But his answer ultimately is, you're going to have to trust me. So that's a good question for you to ask yourself. How much do you trust God in the midst of a world full of evil and suffering? There's some great realities to what this means for us. It means that though these people are rejected on earth, they are close to God in heaven under his protection. Though they are nameless to us, they are known to God. So even the saints in heaven want to know how much longer the church must suffer. And as we see them offer prayers and questions to God, we too should be offering those same prayers to the persecuted church and to those who are bearing witness and giving their lives. This is why it's very appropriate for us to do that. It's one way we combat and fight against evil is through our prayers and lifting up those who are suffering injustice for their faith. Here's another really important note to make. These martyrs are dressed in white not because they died for Jesus, but because Jesus died for them. Okay? What this means is, and this is kind of throughout time, it's become popular at different times to want to seek to die as martyrs because you're going to receive some sort of special privileged place in heaven. That's not the point. Martyrdom is not something that we pursue because we're going to receive some sort of special eternal benefit from it. We're still supposed to value life as Jesus and Paul did. Paul says to live as Christ, to die as gain. There's purpose in life. It doesn't mean we just all need to pursue death for the sake of being in this special place. They are dressed in white, not because they died for Jesus, but because Jesus died for them. I read a great quote uh, this week that said, the world, is not st- the world is still permitted to make martyrs because, because God is still saving sinners through Jesus. So that's the reality. As long as he's doing his saving work, people will be bearing witness to who he is so that people can be saved because we are the privileged means by which people come to know the truth of the gospel and are saved as we tell the story, as we bear witness to the truth. But as long as we do that, our lives will always be at stake. And one reason we may not be being as effective as we would like to be in our evangelism and seeing people come to know Christ is because there's not enough at stake. This is how Satan lulls us to sleep in our culture. Our lives aren't at stake, so we don't feel the pressing need to put our lives on the line to share the truth of the gospel. We don't feel like it's that important because we're okay. We're all doing fine. But it was under the, underneath this oppressive persecution that the church was experiencing where pe- the church is rapidly growing. And people are coming to know Christ with the hundreds and the thousands. So we need to pray against that in our culture, in our country. Here's the sobering reality. God's patience is going to end soon. There will be a last martyr. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.2, Today is the day of salvation. There will be an end from the beginning. And God knows when that perfect time will come, and we don't. And a lot of us want to wait, and we think we have plenty of time. And we have no idea how much time we have left. 
I think it's really comforting here also to see that our souls go straight to heaven. In that place, we have knowledge and awareness of what's going on here on earth. We'll still be concerned for what's going on here, not detached or removed for what's going on on earth. That's a crazy reality to me. We kind of wrestled with and set in this week. We'll know what's going on here, and we'll cry out for justice still before God. And that brings us to our last point, the solution we're all needing. If you look with me at verses 12 through 17, the sixth seal is open in response to the martyr's question. Again, an answer is given. It's an extreme answer, and it's the day of judgment. God will judge evil. He will call it what it is, and He will pour out His wrath upon it. And when He does, there will, it will be cataclysmic to the current reality of what we live in. That it, it will be so cataclysmic that it will create a new heavens and a new earth. A completely new place rid of evil and suffering. So John sees this vision of this cataclysmic reality where the earth will be cleansed and renewed. There'll be a great earthquake. The sun will be blotted out. Stars will appear as though they're falling from the sky and crashing to earth. And great wind will shake the trees. Mountains and islands will sink into the sea and be moved. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, The present form of this world is passing away and only the things of Christ will endure. That's what the judgment is doing. It's purging the earth of all of the evil. In 2 Peter 3, he says, Since all these things are to be destroyed, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And here's where you're presented with the two choices. It says, for those who are not in Christ, who do not have union with Him, they will be so terrified of this day that they will beg the rocks to fall from the mountains onto their heads and crush them and kill them. Because that will be more bearable to them than seeing the face of God. That is a sobering reality. But what's... The juxtaposition of that that's so incredible is that as awful as this day will be, as awful as it will be for people to cry out for rocks to crush their heads so they don't stand before the face of God, in Christ you don't have to fear that day. You will be able to stand in this cataclysmic event and rejoice that it is creating something new and awesome. You will be able to sit in the midst of your cancer treatments ridding your body of cancer, knowing that it will create something new and better. It means there's nothing on this earth that we have to fear as the people of God because it will not take away what is most important, that eternal hope and promise. That though it will take our lives, it will not take our eternal security in Christ and our place in that new heavens and that new earth. Let me close with this. So I saw the movie, uh, it won Best Documentary, Oscar for Best Documentary, Free Solo. Has anyone seen Free Solo? Oh, yeah. Jen knows what I'm talking about. You watched it, Blake? Awesome. Yeah. Who else is over here watching? Yeah, okay, good. Um, for those, Josh, you must really appreciate that as the climber that you are. Blake, I know you're an incredible climber as well. Um, so nimble. Um, so I watched this movie 
And it's one of the most remarkable, maybe I'm overdoing it, but it's one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. It's a little bit, well, it's a lot bit self-indulgent, but it's still an incredible achievement apart from that. And the story is this famed free solo, free solo something, am I saying that right, Josh? Is to climb something with no ropes, no, no safety equipment, right? And he climbs, it is, no one has ever climbed El Capitan, the, 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 this huge, just straight-faced uh, mountain in Yosemite National Park, 7,500 feet tall, which is the equivalent of 700 stories. And what makes the documentary so incredible to watch is basically in order to do this, he has to spend years, I think it's years, studying the mountain. So he's just looking at it, he's climbing it with ropes, he's diagramming it, he's, he's figuring out literally where every fingertip and toe has to go on that mountain for him to go from the bottom of it to the top without dying. And he, it shows him like journaling about it and memorizing it so that when he's up there and the ropes are off, he's not, he knows exactly where he needs to. And it literally like he, it would be like him like climbing one of, like climbing up the wall here, which none of us could probably do to the ceiling because there's nothing to hold on to. He would find places to hold on to. And can like hold himself up by like a fingertip and just a, a you know pinky toe. Um, remarkable strength. And when he first tries it, it's interesting. He goes up and they're obviously filming a documentary, and he knows this. So they've set up all these cameras all over the mountain, and he attempts it the first time, and then he stops like he starts at like 4 a.m. or something. And he stops. Really, he doesn't go very far at all, and he stops like I can't do this. There's too many people watching. It's too much pressure. I don't want to do it like this. And that's a huge deal because they've spent like a year budgeting for this, getting the people ready. They're all training for it. It's not just about him. And he decides, I can't do it. And so they have to pack it up. And they're like, well, when do you want to do it? And he's like, I don't know. I just got to wait till the, right, the time's right. And I, I know I can't do it with all these cameras around. Like, so how do you want us to film? He's like, you got to figure it out. So he goes back and he waits. I think he waits months or maybe even as long as a year before he goes back. And the hardest part of watching it is, is waiting for him to do it. Because you know the beginning from the end. Like, you know, I'm going to watch, like, they didn't film this documentary to watch him fall 200 feet to his death, or 2,000 feet to his death. They filmed this because he actually does it. But it's so hard to see him go the first time and not do it because you're amped up, and you're like, here we go. And then he comes back down, and you just have to wait for him to go back and conquer that thing. But the waiting is what makes it even more remarkable. And I don't know, maybe they did that whole thing just to like build the anticipation, which was a brilliant idea if they did. But it seemed natural and realistic. But then when he goes back and you see him place every finger and toe just like he diagrammed and make it up that mountain, spoiler alert, perfectly and flawlessly, I found myself asking, and I think I texted Josh this, have you ever seen anything more perfectly executed in your life? And I love that as a Christian, my first thought is, yes, that's the gospel. That's what Jesus did. It's more remarkable than Alex climbing the 7,500-foot mountain without ropes because it was perfectly diagrammed and planned from the beginning of time, from all eternity. And we know the beginning from the end, and we know he will conquer it, and we wait for him to come back. And the waiting is making that moment for when he returns so much sweeter. That's why he makes us wait. 
Because he's showing us the beginning from the end and everything in between and how it all works perfectly for this brilliant story called the story of redemption. That is our hope, Christian. If that is not the story that marks your hope in this life, then we, we would ask that you would consider that this morning, even for the first time. Let's pray.